Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tour.com. Joining me today is writer Nisi Shaw, who has previously won the Tip Tree Award in 2008 for her short story collection Filter House, which was also nominated for a World Fantasy Award in 2009 alongside her novella Good Boy. Nisi's new novel is the alternate history steampunk story Everfair, which explores what would have happened with the colonization of the Congo if the native populations had learned about steam technologies a little bit earlier. It's quite fascinating. Nisi, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Oh, I'm very glad to be here. Now, you've been writing science fiction for years. There's been lots of short fiction from you, and it was surprising to me that this was your first published novel. So what made you oh, take the sort of leap with Everfair, and, and you know, what was the transition like? Well, uh, I've actually written three other novels that have not sold, have not been published. So it wasn't that much of a leap. I'd been sort of building up uh, the momentum for a while. What do you think it was about this that worked? Or was this just a novel that you were meant to write at this point? Oh, gosh. Um, I think um, that the person who bought it was attracted by the idea that it was steampunk, frankly. <laughs> uh, I think that it was, um, you know, there was a, a trend going on at the time. This was several years ago that it was bought, mind you. It was bought before it was actually completed. Uh, so at that time, you know, everything was steampunk. Stick some gears on it. There it was, steampunk. So um, the fact that I was working on something in that uh, subgenre was attractive to the editor that bought it. Rewriting history the way you have with Everfair, rewriting Belgium's colonization of the Congo, what made you focus on this particular geographical space and time? Uh, the fact that it was so horrible. <laughs> uh <laughs> I had been um, invited to be on a panel talking about steampunk and wondered why I didn't enjoy it more. Uh, because, uh, though you may not know this, one of my things that I do for relaxation is read Victorian-era literature. And I also am very much drawn to um, old technology, uh, you know, steam... Uh, boilers, uh, reduction gears, and springs, and that sort of thing. They they really do something to me emotionally. So why was I not enchanted with the combination of these things? And I thought about it and decided that it was because they were all, always, uh, well, as far as I could see, they were always uh, used in service of validating colonialism. And so I wanted to get to uh, the most egregious example of the horrors of colonialism, and that was uh, King Leopold's Congo. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that aspect a little later, but uh, before we do, tell me a little bit about where the, where's the premise of Everfair, where did it come from? I understand where the steampunk element came from and why you focused on the Congo, on the, but why both things together and where did the characters come from, where did the story come from? Was there one image or a character who came to mind first? The uh, premise was really that there are these socialists in England, the Fabian socialists, that I knew a bit about because I was fans of some of them. Um, e. Nesbitt, uh, Edith Nesbitt, and her husband Hubert Bland were 
founding members of the Fabian Society, the socialist group. So the premise was that in, rather than starting the London School of Economics, which is what they actually did, they used those funds to buy some land from King Leopold and set up a utopia uh, with, in partnership with some African-American missionaries. Uh, the missionary that I first focused on was actually uh, in real life a man named George Washington Wilson who visited the Congo and was totally creeped out by what he saw there and wrote a letter to King Leopold about, you know, his, his um, crimes against humanity and then died very young. So in my version, he doesn't die very young. He lives a long, long, happy, prosperous, fruitful life. And so, uh, so those were a couple of the people behind the idea. Um, I, I modeled most of the characters on people whom I loved. And maybe that is, maybe that helped uh, because even the villains, except for King Leopold, who doesn't appear on stage in the novel at all. I loved them. Now, Fran Wilde asks uh, over Twitter if you would talk a little about the role of song and singing in Everfair. Uh, yes, what an astute question, Fran. Uh, all of my writing, all of my novels and short stories uh, have music in them, a musical element. Um, when I do a reading, I choose a song that I will sing to introduce the piece. Um, in Everfair, what I typically do is sing a verse or two with audience participation of the anthem. So the anthem of Everfair, which is set to a song I learned from a Miriam Makiba recording, um, that anthem is sung a couple of times throughout the book. There's also um, unspecified the music that Fwendi, uh, a, an African refugee from an unnamed country, she sings a song um, to call cats to her. And then she, when she has enough cats, she, what she calls rides them. She puts her consciousness in them. Uh, and then, otherwise, um, music is part of the dramatic arts, and so people who are important to Everfair are also singers, actors, and music is important in their life. Um, I was thinking about this question and realized that probably a good indicator of whether someone will be working for the good in Everfair is whether or not they're frightened by music or drawn to it. That's interesting. Do you listen to music when you're writing? Oh, all the time. Although uh, when I'm writing, I don't listen to music with lyrics because the words... Right. It, it would be like a, being a painter and having someone scribble something on your canvas. I, but I, I do listen to music. Uh, for Everfair, I had a few uh, CDs that I listened to, and then I created a Pandora station called Mama Africa. Um, 
and was then exposed to beautiful, beautiful music uh, from the Congo, uh, from all over the continent, and also um, it, because of the diaspora, uh, some of the music that I listened to was from Cuba, from Belize, uh, so I was able to listen to a wide variety, and I, I hope that that sort of is can be felt in what I've written. It comes through in the rhythm of the language as well. Oh, good, good. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Explain to me a little, if you can, about this fascination you have with, with you know, cogs and wheels. You said a little earlier how it was something that interested you anyway and something that fascinates you. Where did that come from? You know, I don't know. There's a sex columnist in the U.S. called Dan Savage, and uh, he he says that that um, these sorts of, uh, well, to use the strongest word, fetishes are mysterious. There's no knowing. But I definitely have, I would say, a mild kink for heavy machinery. <laughs> right. Have you ever operated any? I um, have driven a pallet jack. But that's about it. So it's much more, left to be explored. Um, yes. Yeah. It's more uh, an admiration from the sidelines. Ah, fair enough. Now, I read an article uh, on your work on Tor.com recently, and this goes back to what we were just speaking about a few minutes ago. In this article, you were quoted as saying that, you know, steampunk continues to grow, but you don't really want it used in the same way as you were just saying as it had been sometimes. And they quoted you as saying that it had been used as apologia for col colonialism, thoughtlessness, sexism, unconscious assumption of white privilege. Um, tell me a little bit about this more, if you can, please. And how else and where else do you think steampunk could go? And what does it take for it, you know, not to do the negative things that it's done before? Do you think it's simply that, and, you know, I'm just going to say this, is that it's only ever been, well, primarily been written uh, by you know, Western white writers. The problem is very much that most of the steampunk that has been written has either been written by Western white people or for the Western white gays, for Western white audiences. And I found after I'd been on this panel that there is a sort of a counter movement within steampunk which is getting stronger every moment. Uh, um, Jamie Goh is one of the people involved in this, um, and she put together with Joyce Chung a, um, a Malaysian, um, Southeast Asian steampunk anthology. It's called The Sea is Ours, right. and it's fabulous. fabulous. Uh, there's uh, Diana who is at Tor, uh, and she has um, edited some not, some steampunk that's not set in Europe or European colonies. Um, and she runs a website called um, Beyond Victoriana. Jamie's website is Silver Goggles. Uh, there's... Um, a genderqueer person uh, called Margaret Killjoy that used to put out a magazine featuring a lot of uh, counter-narratives in steampunk. So there are some people who 
are challenging this. Uh, there was a lesbian steampunk anthology that also included several writers of color, including um, Amal El Motar. Huh. One of the things that needs to be done in terms of making steampunk less cozy with colonialism is paying attention to what colonialism was like in our history and um, taking, taking into account the work that had to be done and the effect of the work for the whiz-bang gadgets that uh, many steampunk people enjoy. Just taking it into account, making it a little bit more realistic. I think that helped. Moving on to some of your other work, you're the co-editor of the anthology Stories for Chip. How did that come about? Oh, that was pretty easy. Um, I had um, been approached to be in an anthology called Mothership by one of the editors, Bill Campbell, who is an author, an editor, and a publisher. He runs Rosarium Press. He adores Samuel Delaney, who is fondly known as Chip. He thinks that he's a genius, and, you know, Bill is right. He is a certified genius. So because I know some science fiction writers and have a, some experience editing already, Bill asked me to co-edit with him. That's how that came about. It was his idea. Does Delaney remain a strong influence on your work even now? I would say so. I, I would say um, anybody that um, was an influence on you when you began writing is going to continue to be an influence, um, even if you're only pulling away from them. And I'm certainly not pulling away from Delaney. I still have so much to learn from what he's done, what he says to do, um, how he does things how he prefers not to. I'm so very grateful that he's alive and still working and that I can profit from watching him. I'm trying to think, how did he influence me, though? Did you want to know that, or yeah, should we I did. just move In on? Fact, no, 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 please go ahead and tell me. In fact, I was going to ask you if there's one specific piece of advice or something specific you've learned from him that you think, you know, everyone could benefit from? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know if, if there's anything that anyone, that everyone can benefit from. I know that uh, for me, um, the gorgeous sensuality of his language was awakening. Uh, that was what I needed, and that was what I got out of him from the very first. And attention to how things are described and in what order, the importance of, um, I call it entrainment. What do you notice first? What does your character notice first? Um, what, uh, how do they notice it? Why do they notice it? And what does noticing it um, entail? And what does noticing their environment um, lead to? Now, speaking of uh, influences that you had when you started writing, let's go further back. Who were your childhood heroes as far as writing was concerned, and do they remain your heroes even to this day? Oh, um, my childhood heroes. Um, I read a lot of fantasy and science fiction when I was younger. Um, I think that 
the very beginning would have been uh, Space Cat by Paul Galdon. Uh, a close second, um, Eleanor Cameron, The Voyage to the Mushroom Planet. Um, and then um, a book that really, oh, it was my, my standard, my high standard for years, um, Tatsinda by Elizabeth Enright. Um, these books, well, you know, I'm not so much looking at their craft anymore. Um, that's not what moves me. But the idea that there are these marvelous possibilities out there, I keep that in mind, and uh, that's what they taught me. Whose craft moves you now? Oh, gosh. Uh, who do I study? Um, who do I read and think, oh, I could do that, but I could do that this way. Um, so many people, because I, when you're a writer, you're always reading to find out how someone did something and, and can you do it that way. Uh, one of the writers that I've really enjoyed reading, um, a newer writer is, uh, Kai Ashanti Wilson. Yeah. Uh, he, oh, the things that he does with uh, point of view and um, he's sometimes rather cruel to his characters. And he does, his cruelty works in such a way that uh, I identify with them and, and um, I want to protect them. Some people are cruel to their characters and I just don't care. But he hooks me into the characters and then has them experience excruciation. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf now. Who else have, have I been studying? I have been studying uh, Connie Willis, um, who does not do everything exactly the way I would do it. But I've tried several times to get past the, the mortality barrier. And she, in my opinion, has done it. Her characters have died and yet kept on influencing the story, um, influencing me as a reader. Uh, so I want to learn how to do that, and reading her is a good way, I think. Speaking of points of view, uh, there are quite a few in Everfair, and there's some sort of back and forth in time as well, and a large cast of characters. How did you balance all this? <laughs> oh, I um, was very careful to try and give most characters at least three chapters. It, I'm laughing because one, uh, I did not realize until I was maybe halfway through writing this book that I had 11 viewpoint characters, which I think that's pretty extreme. Um, it is so I actually, I actually had to chart out, um, you know, who haven't we heard from in a long time who would be on hand for a particular development. And right. uh, most of the chapters, uh, the majority, although not by very much. The majority of the chapters are from Lisette Tourniers, um point of view. She's the one I identify with most closely, so there you go. And she was modeled, by the way, on the writer Colette. Was this an active decision to use 11 points of view, or was it something that sort of happened a little organically when you were writing? 
Oh, probably more the latter. I did want to um, give voice to multiple demographic uh, elements. I wanted to have, um, you know, not just the story told from the point of view of European socialists or African-American missionaries, but I really wanted to try and, and uh, have of voices of more than one character who had been born in and was native to uh, the land that I was writing about, uh, and more than one uh, point of view of people who were not. Um, it, so then, of course, it became 11. Are short stories your first love? My first love actually is poetry, oddly mm -hmm. enough. As, yes, as in that's what I... Um, was first writing and publishing and uh, performing, um, and then short stories, and then novels. And my thesis is that it took a while for me to have, mm, what would I call this, the continuity of consciousness necessary for writing a novel. <laughs> uh, I, I just couldn't be the same person for long enough to write the same work. Nobody else has, has said anything like this. I'm probably kind of weird in thinking that way. <laughs> Do you work on multiple forms simultaneously? No. <laughs> uh, I have found that I don't even work well on multiple stories in the same form simultaneously. Uh, if I am working on something, uh, like, uh, currently I'm working on a short story which is supposed to be a sequel to Everfair. And that's what I'm doing for all these days. Anytime I have to write a blog post or uh, an essay or a review, I have to stop for a few days with the story and then get back to it. Okay, my last question. Uh, what's more interesting, a dystopia or a utopia? Oh, utopia. So much harder. We're already living in a dystopia. Uh, every, everywhere I look on the globe, I see people who have been trying to uh, create happy circumstances for their lives and failing. So that's easy. There are numerous instances of that. Uh, a working utopia, or even a pretty near miss of a utopia, much more interesting. You think that's possible? Sure. <laughs> yes, I actually do. I know that there are people who think that it's not. I guess they're wrong, in my opinion. That's hopeful. People keep saying I am hopeful. <laughs> I'm a Pollyanna. I'm, a, I'm very much an optimist. Um, okay, I know I said that was my last question, but I must ask what you're working on next. Is there more to Everfair, or have you moved on to the next next big thing? What's next? I am uh, working on a short story that's more or less a sequel to Everfair, and expect to write a second sequel short story to Everfair. So perhaps there will be a novel that's a sequel um, if these short stories feel right, if they work well for me. Do you explore longer 
form projects, I'm using the word projects loosely, do you explore them initially as short stories? No, not always. One thing that I'm doing that nobody else, as far as I can tell, is succeeding that highly with, I write short stories that are set in the same universe. Um, so there's a, a set of stories that are in the world of my interstellar penal colony story, Deep End. I've got five of those, and I hope to write three more. And that, you know, so that in that way, um, this, the stories actually are the project. This is the first time I've done one as sort of an experiment to see if the larger project works. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. Thank you. And that really was my last question. So thank you so much for taking the time out today to speak with me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me and, and asking such interesting questions. You're very welcome. <laughs>